Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. It's great to be with you, and hey, listen to this. We now have 1,000 registered users, over 1,000 registered users on the Conspiracy Show app. So if you haven't got it yet, why not? First of all, why not? <laughs> if you don't, it's a free download from iTunes and Google Play for those of you uh, on Android. Wow, the 14th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Can you believe that? 14 years. And we have a member of the 9-11 consensus panel standing by to offer up the best evidence that really contradicts, tears down, some might say, smashes it into tiny pieces, <laughs> the official version of events that have been spoon-fed us by the MSM, the mainstream media. We'll get to that shortly. I just want to uh, bring this to your attention. Coming up in a few weeks, L.A. Marzulli, author of the Nephilim Trilogy and uh, also the Watchers television series, uh, will be here in Toronto along with Carl Gallops, the author of Final Warning. And they'll, they'll be here in Toronto Wednesday, November, November the 4th. Wednesday, November the 4th at the Oise Auditorium. University of Toronto, right there on Bloor, uh, for an event called As in the Days of Noah. And in the coming weeks, L.A. Marzuli and Carl Gallops will be on the program. Uh, As in the Days of Noah, Wednesday, November the 4th, and tickets are now on sale at Conspiracy Culture. Conspiracyculture.com is the website. As in the Days of Noah, Wednesday, November the 4th, conspiracyculture.com to order tickets. Okay, uh, Graham McQueen. Uh, is here, and he is the founding director of the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster University, where he taught for 30 years. He's co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies. He holds a Ph.D. in Buddhist Studies from Harvard University. He's also a member of the 9-11 Consensus Panel. Graham McQueen, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me on, Richard. My pleasure. Uh, I was... Thinking back, you know, I, I, I was hosting a program just like this one on another radio station uh, during 2001. And I tell you, after 9-11, it was pretty difficult to talk about anything else. I mean, for years, uh, when you're doing a program like this, it seemed yeah. like that's all anyone wanted to talk about. And then for a few years, I was actually doing this show for five nights a week. And now we're talking 2007 up, in, up until 2009. And again, 9-11 loomed large. If we weren't talking about 9-11, it seemed like all roads linked back. Uh, and uh, maybe it's me, uh, Graham, but it seems like things, uh, 14 years on, and it's somewhat understandable, seem to be quieting down. And I'm wondering, is that just a, an erroneous perception? Or are people starting to throw up their hands? Maybe we've resigned ourselves to the likelihood we'll never know the whole story. What do you think? Well, I'm really hesitant to give my my guess is because this, this is actually the kind of thing that people study. You know, they take all these detailed polls and questionnaires and then they try and figure out where people are on this. I haven't read any of the polls recently. The last time I looked, it was about a third of the population in North America, both in the U.S. and Canada, that had doubts about the official story. Which is huge, a third. That's a huge it is. number. It's yeah. a lot of people. So, you know, politicians often don't get that, so they... They make these offhand, disparaging comments about anyone who would question the official story. They don't realize they're insulting 
a lot of people out there who might vote for them. Right. Um, but well, anyway. I, I get that, that you don't necessarily, you know, you're not conducting polls. But what about in your in your circle? What are you, your colleagues? Are they despairing? Well, are they noticing a sea okay. change? Well, no, it's a fair question. Um, the reason I was being so cautious is that obviously I don't move in ordinary circles, right? I mean, I hang <laughs> I'm out. guessing that's correct, yes. Most of the people I hang out with and work with and communicate with know perfectly well that 9-11 was a fraud, they know the whole global war on terror is a fraud, and they work with that every day. So I could easily be living in a little bubble here where I think everybody's on to it, and uh, only to discover, hey, they're not. <laughs> you know? but, um, but let me try approaching it a different way. Uh, obviously, not everyone that I know and that I meet is into this. Um, I can only say that within my own circle of friendships, People have been slowly getting onto it. And, of course, part of that's me. I've tried to be persistent, not too shrill, just offering a little bit here, a little bit there. And especially among my colleagues, uh, other university profs that I know from my years at McMaster, uh, initially the idea that this was an inside job was met with disbelief. And um, certainly among those that I know well, that has slowly melted away. And there are increasing number of them, numbers of them who say, okay, you know, we don't know exactly what did happen, but you're certainly right that it wasn't what the official story says. So I see progress that way. Graham McQueen is here. He is a, a member of the uh, 9-11 Consensus Panel and co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies. He also has a book out entitled, or rather titled, uh, it's not entitled, it's titled, The 2001 Anthrax Deception, The Case for a Domestic Conspiracy. I don't know if we'll have time to get into that. If not, we'll have you back on to talk about that aspect of this. Um, but here's, this this is kind of a, strict, a sticky wicket for me. I, I mean, I've been on record for a long time uh, saying that, you know, that, that someone on the inside either, you know, let it happen or made it happen or a combination of both. Right. Um, but it has almost become, in certain quarters of the 9-11 truth movement, and I, 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 I don't like using, you know, words like community and so forth. However, uh, when you... You see, I'm not a demolitions expert, and I've I've interviewed people like Richard Gage from for Architects and Engineers and, and others. Yeah. Uh, and I and I you know I'm not an explosives expert, and the and the evidence to someone like me uh, seems rather compelling. And then you talk to demolition experts and say, well, no, 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 how can you wire on a 110 story building? How could you do that? And uh, well, that's an interesting point too. The the thing is. I think you can still believe that it was an inside job, and there's lots of evidence to suggest. I mean, to me, Occam's razor suggests it's an inside job. The simplest explanation is it's an inside job. But if you question, it's become almost this orthodoxy uh, that it was controlled demolition. And I'm, I'm not saying one way or the other. I just have doubts. What, how do you respond to that? I mean, Well, I think it's perfect. Your position is perfectly legitimate. You have doubts. You're not sure. You haven't made up your mind. You think it's valid to ask questions really that's that's all i try to persuade people to do most of the time mm -hmm. instead of stigmatizing us and calling us idiots and nuts um you know listen to us um engage in dialogue and conversation now on the issue of the, the buildings coming down there is a new booklet that's going to be out um in a few days and i don't know if you know about it yet but I want to give it a plug if I can. Please do. Yeah, so it's put out by Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. So mm -hmm. it's produced by an organization made up mainly of building professionals. So 
So these are people who do know actually a lot about buildings. Right. right. And the booklet um, for your listeners, you, they can order it easily online, either by going to the Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth website or by uh, just looking at, under the title. The title is Beyond Misinformation. Okay. What Science Says About the Destruction of World Trade Center Buildings 1, 2, and 7. All right. Now, I... I've been one of the guys who's been on the review panel for this booklet. We get all the drafts, we comment, we say this is convincing, this isn't, this should be changed. So I've read it and I'm saying this is good, okay? And it doesn't it seems to me that it would be difficult for anyone to read that booklet with an open mind and come away thinking the official story of the collapse of those buildings was correct. It can't be correct. And you don't actually have to be a demolitions expert to know that it can't be correct. Well, I will. I, I, I look forward to looking at that. I look forward to looking at that. Uh, I mean, sure. Uh, uh, you know, we have we have uh, lots of anecdotal evidence of explosions in the basement. We have uh, uh, the uh, the caretaker at the uh, World Trade Center tower whose name escapes me, uh, uh, who who swore up and down he was in the basement and he heard there were explosions in the basement prior to. Uh, the supposed impact of the planes and so forth. You're right. There's just uh, so reams and reams of of, uh, of evidence that we're not getting the full story. Um, let's let's walk through some of that uh, evidence. And let sure. me ask you the, the, the question I referenced earlier, and that is, how do you, if it is controlled demolition? Um, and I'm hope I'm I hope I'm not asking you to speculate too much. But I mean, would it be? Is it feasible? Is it has it ever been done before to wire a 110 story building, or do you even need to do that anymore? Well, I approach this from a different perspective, Richard. Um, I approach it from the perspective of what they're telling us happened. Okay? Um, they're, they, meaning, you know, the government of the United States and the official agencies that have carried out the examination of the buildings, especially the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which came out with these very long studies um, of the... Uh, the three buildings that underwent complete and rapid destruction on 9-11, buildings 1, 2, and 7. So um, what do I do? Well, I read the reports uh, on 1, 2, and 7 put out by the official agencies. I read them carefully. I read thousands of pages. I try and sort out what it means. No, I'm not a demolitions expert, but, of course, they don't discuss demolitions. Uh, I'm not a, an architect or an engineer. My training is very different. But these are not particularly difficult um, studies, frankly, to understand. <clears throat> so I try and see if they make sense, and then I read critiques of them, and then I do my own research on eyewitness evidence. So I don't start from, gee, how could they be wired for destruction? I start from, here's the story we're told is correct. And at the end of the day, I say, there's no way that happened. There's no way that could have happened. You know, like Building 7, for example, you cannot have a building 47 stories high and make it come down at freefall acceleration symmetrically, and suddenly, yeah, that is that is definitely. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't odd. even hit by a plane, right? Correct, correct. And it did not have major structural damage from the collapse of World Trade 
one, which at one point people said it did. And it did not, it was not a raging inferno at the time it came down. We know that now. All right. Listen, uh, I've got to take a, a time out here, Graham. Sure. Stay put. We'll come back on the other side. Graham McQueen from the 9-11 Consensus Panel and also uh, the uh, founding director of the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster University, just down the road in Hamilton. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. Richard Serrett with you. And uh, joining us on the line is Graham McQueen uh, from the uh, 9-11 Consensus Panel. And um, you, you mentioned Building 7 uh, earlier, Graham. I remember reading uh, Popular Mechanics, which, uh, if memory serves, is a... Uh, is that not a Hearst publication? <laughs> now we lost... Uh, did we lose Graham? Okay, uh, if you want to maybe pot that down there, Matt, we're having some difficulties on the other side. We have lost our guest. All right, uh, we'll try and get uh, Graham McQueen back in just a few moments, and uh, we'll continue to talk about 9-11. Let me give you a, a heads up as well. What's uh, coming up? Rosemary Ellen Guiley will uh, be making her long return to the program next week. It's been a while. Rosemary's very busy in the summer uh, on uh, attending various conferences and, in, and different investigations and uh, so forth. Uh, but she returns next week on the program at her usual time, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll do our paranormal news roundup. Uh, also coming up on the program, uh, we're trying to get a hold of Jim Mars. Jim Mars is coming back to Toronto in October. Our good friends Patrick and Kadena down at Conspiracy Culture have uh, Jim Mars coming to town, and uh, we'll get some more details on that. Uh, so we'll try to get Jim here to talk about, I'm sure he's working on uh, something. He's always writing whenever I call uh, or talk to Jim down in Texas. Uh, and then L.A. Marzulli, uh, of course, from The Watchers television series, if you're familiar with that whole arena uh, of discussion revolving around uh, the Nephilim, fallen angels, and uh, and so forth. He'll be with us, the author of the Nephilim Trilogy, L.A. Morzuli, and uh, our good friend Carl Gallops, Pastor Carl Gallops, author of Final Warning, uh, will be with us as well. And that's all leading up to their appearance in Toronto on Wednesday, November the 4th, Wednesday, November the 4th, uh, down at the Oise Auditorium. All right, do we have uh, Graham McQueen back? Are you there, Graham? Do we have Graham? I'm not hearing him. Are you there, Graham? One more time. I'm here. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, All right. We were talking about Building 7 earlier. Right. And uh, I remember reading uh, uh, Popular Mechanics, and I was just, I think I was about to say that I think that was a Hearst publication, (laughs) which is sort of the uh, the ground zero for yellow journalism and and so forth. However, uh, you remember uh, William Randolph Hearst, you you provide the war, and I'll uh, I'll provide the war, and you give me the pictures. Right. uh, and, And... Popular Mechanics did this whole uh, uh, hatchet piece trying to debunk 9-11, and they maintained that one-third of Building 7, they said there was massive structural damage, although I don't don't recall seeing any pictures, but they said there was one-third of the building was literally scooped out. But if that's the case, I mean, you wouldn't think it would fall symmetrically. You would think it would just kind of tilt over and... Yeah, well, actually, one-third of the building was not scooped out, regardless of what they said. We know much, much more now than when that was written. Mm-hmm. And uh, for for listeners who are interested, David Ray Griffin dealt in detail 
with the allegations of popular mechanics several years ago in a book called Debunking 9-11 Debunking. So all those claims about it having Building 7 having been badly structurally damaged so that it could have come down because of that, this was actually found to be incorrect by the U.S. government agency itself. I mean, when the National Institute of Standards and Technology published their final report on Building 7, it pretty much blew uh, popular mechanics and a number of similar uh, publications out of the water because they said, well, actually, the, the structural damage was not so significant enough to explain the collapse of this building. And similarly, the, all the, the supposed raging inferno caused by the oil stored in the building, well, no, actually, that wasn't true. Diesel fuel, right. That wouldn't right. be enough to melt steel. Well, it wasn't enough to melt steel, but also in, they had very little. there was very little evidence that that had uh, been a significant factor. A great deal of that oil was actually taken out of the building after the collapse and um, still stored there. Um, so a lot of these things we heard that were supposed to explain how that building came down have no official support uh, any more than they have support from those of us who spent a long time studying it in, from an alternative perspective. They're still hanging out there on the Internet, but they, they've been... Um, tossed aside years ago. Um, the other thing I need, wanted to say to you was, you know, I, when I was speaking to you about the collapse of these buildings, I came at it from the point of view of it's obvious the official story is false, and I, I, I would continue to affirm that. But there's also positive evidence of controlled demolition here that, that we, we have to be clear about. I don't know how many listeners are familiar with it, but the evidence of extremely high temperatures uh, that, that was undergone by these buildings before they collapsed is is really important. I mean, there's no way that the jet fuel or the office fires could have caused steel to evaporate, um, could have caused lead to evaporate, could have, could have produced molten molybdenum, which all these things take extremely high temperatures. There's no way the uh, official fire story works. Secondly, there is the nanothermite found in the dust in large quantities by independent researchers. Um, again, this does not fit the official story. This is a sophisticated military-grade stuff which can be used either as an incendiary or an explosive. And thirdly, the eyewitnesses. You mentioned anecdotal accounts, and the, the accounts you mentioned are certainly interesting, but the listeners have to have to realize that we're not talking about one or two stories that people told here. I myself compiled a list of 156 eyewitnesses, okay, that witnessed explosions, and this is just in the two buildings, this doesn't count, doesn't count seven, just in the Twin Towers themselves. 156 people, um, and, you know, I think it's perfectly clear if you read these accounts that there were explosions and that they were not the explosions that we would normally expect in a high-rise fire. I've dealt with this in stuff I've written, and if people get the book that I suggested earlier, uh, Beyond Misinformation, uh, they go through this systematically. Uh, and talk to me a little bit about uh, nanothermite, and I understand that there were traces of it discovered on the rooftops of buildings, you know, blocks and blocks away, along with, with bone fragments parts of human remains, which would tend to suggest some sort of an explosion. 
Well, nanothermite um, is a sophisticated form of thermite. The basic, uh, again, I'm not a chemist, but this isn't really all that complicated. Um, ordinary thermite is something that uh, can, is not all that uncommon. The most common formula is basically rust, in other words, iron oxide mixed with um, powdered aluminum. And uh, when it's ignited, this mixture, at very high temperatures, which is what it takes to ignite it, it goes, a chemical reaction is produced and we get um, aluminum oxide, uh, which we can see in usually kind of a white cloud, and elemental iron, um, the element iron, which you can see often running away from this. And of course, there was there were copious amounts of yellow liquid flowing from the towers just before they came down, either iron or steel in a molten form. So, um, and there's video evidence or photographic evidence. Of oh that, yeah, right? I mean it's it's really clear, and even the National Institute of Standards and Technology can't deny that there's this liquid pouring out of the buildings. So um, so that's thermite, and thermite would be something that could be used to weaken uh, the structure of the building. It's no one that I know of is suggesting that's the only thing that would be used to bring them down. But it's an obvious agent that could have been used. So what they, what some scientists did was uh, look through the dust. They were given samples of the dust from a variety of locations, and they were careful with chain of custody. This is the person that gave it to me. This is when they gave it. This is when it was collected. This was where it was collected. They then looked at it in detail, and they found, as I said, a sophisticated form of thermite. <coughs> The, uh, if you want to put it this way, the particles of thermite are extremely, extremely small, and uh, and that means the chemical reaction takes place more vigorously, and um, so that this stuff can be used not only to melt things but also as an explosive. What's it doing in the dust? So, in other words, uh, Graham, you, you, one doesn't need. If you want to bring these buildings down, and we've seen this countless times, these hotels along the Strip in Las Vegas uh, that come down, you know, perfectly uh, often within their own footprint if it's done correctly. And these things take months and months to wire. What you're saying with something like nanothermite, you wouldn't need to wire the building. You would just need to strategically place the nanothermite. Well, I don't know what people mean when they say wire the buildings. You don't. I don't think you literally need wires anymore. You need to ex you need to place your explosives in different parts of the building, and you need to have a system by which you can signal, you know, and make them go off uh, at the right time. Um, and whether it's thermite or, or what it's used, what, whatever it is, it would have had to be, been done in advance, and they would have to be placed very carefully in just the right locations. Uh, when people say, oh, it's too complicated, it couldn't be done, I, I have to kind of, you know, I, I get really puzzled because what they're really saying is you could bring down three massive steel skyscrapers by hitting two of them with jets, and you could bring them down in a way that looks like a controlled demolition, and that's not a problem for us somehow. But but it couldn't be an actual controlled demolition because that would be too hard. In other words, it would be too hard to bring them down with explosives, 
Well, you could bring them down with, with a couple of planes. I mean, I think right. that, that doesn't make any sense. There's that music uh, percolating up, so we'll take a time out. We'll come back. Graham McQueen stays with us. We'll talk about buildings 4, 5, and 6. People forget about buildings 4, 5, and 6. They suffered far greater damage uh, as a result of the uh, explosion and the, uh, the, the impact of the planes, and yet they didn't topple down the way Building 7 did or the North and South Tower. So we'll talk about that and much more. 9-11... The Consensus Panel, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Graham McQueen stays with us. Everyone talks about uh, the North and South Towers and, of course, Building 7, uh, but we forget there were other buildings in the World Trade Center complex, Buildings 4, 5, and 6. Now, they were, they were hit pretty hard by debris and so forth. What happened to those buildings? Well, I don't know the uh, nature of the damage to 4, 5, and 6 well enough to discuss it in detail. Never focused on it, but I do want to say one or two things. First of all, um, basically the whole World Trade Center which was a massive complex, mm -hmm. was destroyed. And we're led to believe the whole thing was destroyed by two airplanes. The nature of the destruction of the buildings varied. In the case of 1, 2, and 7, those are the ones I've concentrated on simply because they look like controlled demolition and right. they involve the rapid destruction and we might even say pulverization of three massive buildings. The other buildings suffered different kinds of damage, but they all had to be taken down. They were useless. Right. Uh, they were ruined. My understanding was that 4, 5, and 6, uh, they had fires raging uh, inside them for far longer than Building 7. In fact, suffered far more serious structural damage, and yet they didn't topple over or didn't collapse within their own footprint like Building 7. So there's that. That's kind of an right. interesting thing. And then it's been long maintained that no building uh, of a similar construction to the World Trade Center towers has ever been destroyed in a similar fashion, although many buildings of a similar construction have had fires. Professor Stephen Jones talks about, I think he holds up the example of the Windsor uh, building in Madrid, Spain, back in 2005. A 32-story building, similar construction, and fire raged there for something like 20 hours. Right. And yet did not collapse. Well, that's the thing. There have been lots of tall buildings that have been on fire before, including steel frame skyscrapers, and they did not come down like these buildings came down. None of them did. You know, this really isn't controversial. Again, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which carried out the official investigation of this for the U.S. government, said that these were the first tall buildings in history to have come down primarily from fire. The other interesting aspect of this case is here we have a huge crime scene. And I understand, you know, there, there are toxins and so forth, and, and uh, there was an, a, certainly an urgency to, to clean it up and, and, and move it on and so forth. But, I mean, talk about tampering and destroying, obliterating evidence in a crime scene. Most of that debris, was it taken to Fresh Kills Landfill on Staten Island, or was it shipped off to China? I've heard both. Well, I, I think it's a matter of stages. I think Fresh Kills Landfill got it first. This is my understanding in any case. And uh, most of it ended up, yeah, being sent to China and recycled, which is, as you pointed out, just extraordinary. <laughs> and, and there were, you know, I mean, there were specialists in fire investigation and so on who said at the time, this is, this is outrageous. You don't treat a crime scene this way. Um, 
And they started removing this material immediately. They could justify it initially by saying, oh, well, you know, we're looking for survivors. But then, you know, if that's the case, you move it somewhere and you keep it, right? And then you study it. You don't ship it off. So that when the National Institute of Standards and Technology finally got their act together to look at the steel, there was very little of it left. And then when they did look at the steel, they did not find evidence that suggested that there were fires of the temperature that would have been required to bring down the building. So the whole thing is fishy. What would you like to see? I mean, much of the physical evidence is now gone, is it not? I mean, how how would we construct a court case now at this date uh, where much of the physical evidence has been, it would seem, deliberately destroyed? Well, I think that's one of the reasons, of course, that it was destroyed. I think the people who did this knew that um, it's really important that if this ever comes to court, it'll be too late. And, um, you know, physical evidence will be gone. Eyewitnesses will be mostly either dead or, um, you know, discouraged in one way or another from testifying. And so we're home free. And there are lots of people, including lawyers, uh, who are thinking now about how to get a court case going and have been trying to do that for years, but the court systems are sufficiently corrupt that it's difficult to do that. Let me take the eyewitnesses. I mean, I I did my first study of eyewitnesses. I don't even remember when it was now. I think I published that first article in 2008 or something. And, um, you know, so here we are. It's 2015. It'll soon be 2016. Um, those eyewitnesses are dying, all right? I mean, a lot of them breathed in the buildings. That's, in effect, what they were breathing in. We just lost the dust lady, that iconic photograph of that woman, covered head to toe in dust, just died of uh, uh, cancer. That's correct. And what we call dust, we have to remember, that's the buildings, right? That's the kind of thing they were reduced to. We're told by gravity. Okay, Uh, I've got to take a time out here. We'll come back. Graham McQueen stays with us till the top of the hour. 9-11, 14 years later. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarin. All right. Graham McQueen is uh, with us for a few moments yet as uh, we continue to commemorate the 14th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, sort of walking through some of the inconsistencies in the official version of events as they pertain to the collapse of uh, World Trade Center Towers 1, 2, and 7. Uh, I just want to step back from that a minute and sort of look big picture here. So many members now of that original 9-11 commission that was put together in 2002, and I, I, I think they spent more on George Bush's re-election uh, barbecue, quite literally, uh, than they did funding that commission. And, and so many members, Thomas Keene and um, I think it was John Farmer, who was senior counsel, have and others now, many of them, have, have walked away from that commission, distanced themselves from it, and said, we were not, not only were we not given the resources, uh, there was deliberate obfuscation. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're saying that it was an inside job. It just says they, they weren't allowed to do their job. Um I think more attention needs to be made to 
the first, it was a joint uh, House and Senate investigation that was co-chaired by Senator Bob Graham. Uh, and he has since written a book called Security Matters, and he is screaming bloody murder about the cover-up uh, and the, the, the role of the Saudi, uh, the House of Saud, the Saudi Arabians in this whole mess. And it's heavily redacted. Apparently he was threatened with jail if he released about a lot of this information. Uh, so much misdirection, and we seem to be looking for clues in all the wrong places. What, what, I mean, have you ever approached Senator Bob Graham to talk about this? Uh, I haven't personally approached him, no. I mean, I have friends who've tried to talk to him about it. Um, I think he is upset and angry and wants, for example, the 28 redacted pages released and uh, the role of Saudi Arabia to be acknowledged. I would be very surprised if he'd be willing to um, keep his mind open to the sort of thing that I'm suggesting. But that's okay. Like, I mean, I... I think this should be an open dialogue or debate uh, from all uh, in which every voice is permitted. I'm pretty confident that the truth will emerge if we're allowed to have that dialogue. What annoys me is the closing of the dialogue and uh, where people like me are dismissed as conspiracy nuts and told to shut up, basically. Well, you know, we're not going to shut up. That's not going to happen, folks. Um, we're not going away. And we're going to continue to produce evidence. Uh, I like the the theme of your program, which is go look at the evidence and make your own conclusion. So you've mentioned a couple of times that I'm a member of the 9-11 consensus panel. I hope that uh, the listeners will look it up. They can find it on the Internet. Just type in 9-11 consensus panel. There's almost 50 points now that have been reviewed by over 20 people. It's an international panel, and we've put together these points that where we think the government narrative is impossible, falls apart. Um, so look at them. We've got the evidence. Use it. Use that. Use the booklet I keep mentioning. Uh, the 14th anniversary of 9-11 is coming up. Uh, there are all kinds of events happening. Uh, watch them. Listen to them. There's one that's... Uh, put on, organized mainly by Canadians, and you can find it on the Internet. It'll be happening on September 11th and 12th. Just uh, type in Rethink September 11, and you'll find it. You know, I'll be one of the speakers, but there's going to be a whole bunch of interesting uh, people from Canada uh, and from the U.S. mainly, also from Switzerland. So I guess uh, I'm just saying, you know, I, I'm not really, I don't have anxiety about um, the truth, if the dialogue is permitted, if people do research on this, if universities get off their butts and let their graduate students write theses and, and they write articles and they look into this, I'm quite confident the truth will come out. This isn't rocket science. It really isn't. Well, it, it's, um, was it Schopenhauer's three stages of truth? First, it's uh, ridiculed. Uh, then it's violently opposed, and thirdly, it's accepted as self-evident. What stage do you think we're in? <laughs> um, probably the second. Violently opposed. Yeah. Interesting. And uh, and there are some hints every now and then of, of people going for, oh, well, that's obvious. Of course, we've always known that. <laughs> so, so, you know, I hope we get to that 
full, fully to that third stage in my lifetime, but who knows? Well, uh, I mean, we're not there yet with, with the JFK assassination. No. Although, I mean, many people now accept it as self-evident, but they say, okay, so now what do we do with that? We know it wasn't a single bullet theory. We know it wasn't Oswald. We know, we know, we know, we know, but what are we going to do about it? Well, that's a very good point. Um, uh, JFK and 9-11 are similar in some ways. The, the official stories in both cases are absolutely absurd and violate the laws of physics. Um, and they also ignore massive numbers of eyewitnesses. So um, you're right. Even if we were able to get everyone to agree tomorrow, and actually it is a majority of the U.S. population, it has been for decades, that doesn't believe the official story of JFK. But as you say, so what? So what? Nobody's, you know, nobody's been dragged before a court for this. Um, and, you know, what? what's the uh, benefit in terms of foreign policy? Well, you know, I mean, that... That's our dilemma. I don't have a solution. 9-11 is the same. The danger is that we will eventually win over the majority of the population, but that, you know, it won't have a substantial impact. So, I mean, what do we do? Well, we resist. We do the best we can. Um, you know, we're, we have to be more clever. We have to be more assertive. We have to take this to court more frequently. We'll fail many times before we succeed. But, you know, this, this booklet I mentioned that architects and engineers are putting, I mean, they're, they're mailing it to something like 20,000 people, including a hell of a lot of engineers and architects, and including Congress people, and so on and so forth. A breakthrough of major proportions could happen. I'm not saying it will, but it could happen at any time. I think there are two positive notes as well that's, that's, that have come out of this. And, and one, there have been uh, several studies recently, university studies, uh, that have sort of looked at the mindset of people who tend to look at and believe, subscribe to official version of events, and then those who are, uh, and I would be in that camp, you would be in that camp, that are perceived as the conspiracy theorists. Right. Uh, and what they concluded was it is – not the conspiracy theorists that cling to things like confirmation bias. It is those that subscribe to official versions of events. I found that rather uplifting. I don't know if you remember those studies. No, but I find it uplifting too. So by all means, send me the links. I will. The other thing, uh, and I, a gentleman that's a somewhat regular on this program, Joel Skousen, is a, uh, an editor of a, an alternative news uh, letter entitled uh, World Affairs Brief. Uh, and, and he likewise looks at 9-11 as, a, uh, as a, 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 a false flag operation. And I'm not trying to put – I don't know that you necessarily subscribe to that. We're just looking at the facts here. But he does look at it as a false flag. And he says that the, the whole 9-11 truth movement really probably prevented another similar false flag because who was ever behind this, whatever rogue elements uh, were, were orchestrating this false flag, uh, saw this groundswell uh, from these grassroots groups and said, we can't do this again. We can't, we'd, we'd never be able to pull another one of these off. They, they, they're on to us, essentially. Right. So, so maybe people like you and your groups and others, architects and engineers, uh, pilots for 9-11 Truth, and I've talked to a number of them, maybe they did have a hand in, in, in preventing another one of these false flags. Yeah, I think it's very likely. I think we've, I mean, I can't prove it, obviously, but I think we've made life difficult for them. I think when the Malaysian plane was 
shot down over Ukraine, and they immediately tried to blame it on Russia. They didn't have as much success with that as they thought they would. I think when they blamed uh, Syria, the Syrian government for using chemical weapons, they didn't have too much luck with that. In both cases, the official stories were, sh were shown to be wrong. Um, and I think they, they're not having as much success because independent researchers, including, thank God, some scientists, aren't just sitting back. They're looking into it. And and that's what we need to do is make things more difficult for them. So even in Canada, we have these things like uh, last year uh, in October, we had two quote-unquote terrorist events that had a big, uh, a big impact here. We end up with Bill C-51 passed. We start losing civil liberties. Well, I thought, I'm Canadian. Um, I think maybe I need to look into this. So I've spent months writing a report on the attacks on Parliament Hill, and I'll be releasing that very shortly in a, in a couple of weeks. And again, you know, it's because I think we cannot simply accept what they say. We have to look at it. Does it stand up or doesn't it? You're absolutely right. Uh, and, and, and I remember doing uh, a series of shows after the Ottawa shooting, and we talked about, you know, the, uh, we're talk, it's, it's, it's not polite to talk about these things sometimes, or it's not nice, uh, but we had a serious gut wound there and, and almost an, an absence of any blood. Um, so there yeah, many, many questions. I, well, I look forward to reading that report, uh, Graham, when that comes out. Uh, I'll the, try and make sure you get it. Thank you. So in the meantime, uh, what is next for uh, the 9-11 consensus panel? Uh, more more questions that you're going to, uh, to sort of unravel? Uh, wh what's next? I don't. I don't know what's next. I'm not one of the main decision makers there. I'm just a member of the international panel. I know that uh, they want to get to the 50, 50th point quite soon, so we'll be able to say we got 50 points. We're close, and so there's a struggle to do that. But what the uh, decision will be after that, I don't know. I mean, with these kind of initiatives, you get to a point sometimes of diminishing returns, right? You say we've got 50 really good points, and we could keep going for the rest of our lives and get more points. But if people aren't convinced by these 50, um, you know, is there really any point going on? I reached this with my collection of eyewitnesses at the World Trade Center. You know, when I got 156 people that had witnessed explosions, I thought, well, I could spend the rest of my life and maybe get up to 200, 250, 300. But really, if people... If people feel able to dismiss 156 people, most of whom are firefighters or cops, um, and a guy says, you know, I was thrown 40 feet and practically lost my hearing, and somebody tries to explain this as, oh, well, it was just, uh, you just heard, you know, column snapping. Um, you know, in other words, if people can dismiss 156 accounts like that, they can dismiss 300. So then at some point you have to say, okay, we've gone as far as we need to go here. Now we need another initiative. And it's possible cons the consensus panel will decide that. I don't know. Uh, yeah, perhaps, uh, you know, m move your attention uh, away from the means and more to motive, opportunity. Sure. There's lots of ways we could go. All right, Graham, a real pleasure. Thanks for hanging out with me for the last hour. I look forward to receiving your report on the Ottawa shooting, and I will uh, gleefully uh, send those links to you about those uh, reports that say the conspiracy theorists are not the, uh, the crazies. It's those that cling desperately to the official version of events. I think you'll enjoy that. Thank you for having me on. It's very generous of you, and it's good to talk to you. My pleasure. Graham McQueen. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. 
Uh, the website, folks, it's strangeplanet.ca or strangeplanet.tv. And uh, say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. As always, follow the truth.